Blog Talk Radio. Chatting with Sherry is presented by the writers and illustrators of the future. They've been providing a means for new and budding writers to have a chance for their creative efforts to be seen and acknowledged. Welcome to Chatting with Sherry. I'm really excited to be chatting with screenwriter and author Paul Coyle. Sorry, my tongue got twisted for a moment. He uh, wrote some of my favorite shows. Uh, he wrote Crazy Like a Fox, Jake and the Fat Man, Xena Warrior Princess, several different Star Treks, uh, and many, many other things, and he's writing his first book. Hi, Paul. Welcome to the show. Hi, Hi Sherry. Yeah, it's good to be here <laughs> under strange <laughs> circumstances, but uh, yes, uh, the phone-in interview is a perfect format for these times when we're all stuck at home. Yeah, it is a... It, it, I mean, it is a really strange thing that um, everybody's distanced. I, I just was reading a post on Facebook, someone saying they were distancing themselves from their husband. I was like, right. okay. <laughs> <laughs> Do you live in a house with other people? Or I'm by myself, so I, you know, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I don't have yeah, immediate I uh, issues. With, um, actually, my brother and I share an apartment, and right. I mean, he's Do you go out for restaurants or take what take out food now? Do you go out to pick uh, essentials up, or are you just hunkered in? We're hunkered in. Oh boy. Yeah. Here yeah, in my, here in L.A., where there are trouble getting toilet paper and other items, you know, that are flying off the uh, supermarket shelves. It's so really I stocked funny up. because uh, that shouldn't be. I mean, I I'm I know. From- L.A. I'm originally from Los Angeles, and I've been through two major quakes, uh, the Northridge quake and the uh, the one in Granada Hills when I was a little girl. I can't remember the name of it. But that's why we have all the supplies, because of a quake, not because of this thing. So it's kind right. of strange that everybody's panicking. <laughs> right, and there's no need for people to be buying water now, extra water, but that is an essential for an earthquake, the possibility of water right. shut off. So, um, yeah, but uh, there's no, well, anyway, you know the situation, the panic, uh, people are in panic mode and uh, they're just uh, ripping stuff off the store shelves and <laughs> we'll, see, we'll see how it goes. But uh, people over 65 can get into supermarkets, uh, you know, early 7 a.m. Some of the markets are letting you know, elders in, so um, they don't have to fight the crowds, although still gets a little crowded, but. (laughs) I think that's really good. I think that's uh, safer because of the craziness that's going on. Right. And uh, I was just telling you pre-show, I raced over to Staples the other day to stock up on office supplies because I can't afford to be caught uh, low on paper or toner cartridge or, or that kind of thing in case those stores have to shut down. Yeah. Uh, I actually have a really funny story about water. I don't know. We get our water delivered, um, okay. you know, for the water uh, sure. thing, you know, the water and stuff. And um, we have we get two big bottles because my brother is a weightlifter and he drinks a lot of water. And he, the guy who delivers it always puts it right against the door so it's out of visual sight of people below. Oh, right. And you have to hide it now. But this was before. He's always done it. 
Sure. But so when I woke up in the morning, I went to, I always checked to make sure the delivery was right where it was supposed to be. And then around lunchtime, I went and the water had moved. I think people tried to take it, but they were like 50 pound water things and they couldn't do it. Wow. No, I mean, they had two 50-pound water things and ended up just leaving it in a different place. <laughs> All right, good. Well, do you know do you know when to expect these deliveries to be look on the lookout mm-hmm. for them? Well, it comes in the morning, and and they're really heavy, and I can't lift 50 pounds each of water. That's beyond right. me. <laughs> Is this a daily thing that comes every day? Oh no, no, that's uh, every two weeks. Every toe. Oh, all right. All right. Well, it's good that you can be on the lookout for it. Um, and I'm worried about, you know, the, the, supposedly the government is going to start sending people relief checks. And um, I hope they're uh, uh, sent directly into people's bank accounts because if they send out checks, there's going to be people on the lookout. You know, that if on certain days, if they expect uh, mailboxes are going to be full of $1,000 checks, uh, you better get to your mailbox uh, fast that day. Be on the lookout for the, if we know what day they're coming. You know what I'm saying? These are considerations well, I mean, that we have to. I get my tax refund sent directly to my bank account, so right. it shouldn't be a big, big deal, right? <laughs> if they do it that way, I heard they might send out physical checks. Not, not everyone has a bank account that uh, you can wire money directly into. Okay. I mean, I do. We, you do, and I do. Most, many people do, but many people do not. I didn't even know that existed anymore. Um, <laughs> thought everybody was on the wire, especially big banking firms and stuff like that. <laughs> um, All right. So I wanted to ask you about your early part of your career. Um, how did you get into writing for TV? Um, were you always into Were you into theater, or were you into um, well, it, writing for film? How did that happen? Well, I started. Uh, my interest started as a kid. I mean, uh, I read comic books. You know, I was very much into Marvel comics. I was there at the uh, the golden age of Marvel, Spider-Man number one, and. Uh, so forth. I had a huge collection of, of those, which, which ultimately my mother threw out because that's what mothers used to do in those days. So that would be a very valuable box full of uh, first editions if I still had them. Oh, but, yeah. Um, and I think one of the first things I wrote was a story for Thor, you know, Thor, the god of thunder for, for the Marvel character Thor. And uh, I, I didn't know what, a, what the format was for a comic book, so I just wrote it as a short story. Um, I must have been 12 or 13 at the time I did this, and I sent it, uh, you know, to New York, to Stan Lee, and, uh, you know, after a week or so, of course, it came back in the mail with a, with a, it was being rejected, of course, but with a very nice complimentary letter from Stan Lee himself, um, signed by oh, Stan, you know, and, yeah, encouraging me and so on and so forth, and, uh, and then uh, around the time of high school, um, I started somewhere I came across a script or in a magazine like Writer's Digest, they published some pages from a uh, TV script. It was Harlan Ellison's famous uh, Star Trek episode. Actually, oh. the, actually, his draft of it, you know, not the shooting script that, that we, everybody saw when, when it was finalized, but his original work. The tea, I think they ran the teaser. And just reading the format 
oh, I thought, you know, it's kind of like a play, but it's got camera directions. It's very visual. And immediately that uh, turned me on. I, I thought I could, I could write something like that. And then eventually I got hold of some other scripts. Uh, one of uh, my um, teachers at uh, high school, a Catholic high school, had some movie scripts like The Graduate and Bonnie and Clyde. So I was exposed to those, and I started writing scripts. I taught, essentially taught myself script writing format by, uh, by reading other scripts. And then I started writing specs, what's called speculative submission. You know, if you, you choose an episode of a TV series and you write an episode on your own, <laughs> um, and then you, you, good luck trying to get people in Hollywood to read it, but, but I was doing that and grinding them out and sending them out. And then there was a long-running show called Death Valley Days, and um, it had been on TV for something like 19 years and on radio before that, and Ronald Reagan had, was the host for it for a while. It was an anthology of uh, Western stories uh, adapted from real-life uh, Westerns, uh, real-life stories. And they uh, read in Writer's Digest that they were open to submissions from anyone. So you could write a script and send it to them, and they would read it. And I, I started doing that and was getting very positive feedback, very encouraging. You know, they weren't buying anything, but um, this is you know, the trouble was that with the show on for so many years, they had done so many stories. And I kept, uh, I went to the library and researched uh, stories of the Old West, and then I would write adaptations of some, and they said, well, this is great, but we did this story 10 years ago. <laughs> so, but if you're ever in Hollywood, if you're ever in Hollywood, you know, come in and look us up. This is a, the story editor was a woman named Ann Udell. So that inspired me. I was in my senior year of high school, and I said, all right, this is, it's now or never. I've got to move to Los Angeles and pursue this seriously, and I have a kind of an open door when I get there. Um, no guarantee of anything, but <laughs> someone on a show that's uh, willing to, to meet with me. So I started looking at, into colleges and offer writing classes in L.A. There was no Internet in those days, so you'd have to go – to the public library, I guess, to read up on uh, schools like UCLA and USC. And I came across, um, I discovered that uh, Dorothy Fontana, D.C. Fontana, was teaching a writing class at Los Angeles City College. And I knew the name D.C. Fontana, not just from Star Trek, but from other shows she did, like Bonanza and Lancer and so forth. And I said, this is a person who's really doing what I want to do. Yeah. And I, all right, so I signed up and, you know, I was ready to make the move. Nobody, my parents didn't really think I would go through with it. Really, nobody in those days, very few people in Providence, Rhode Island, this is where I was uh, born and raised, to move to Hollywood <laughs> was kind of uh, like moving to the moon, you know. But um, I followed through. I came out on a Greyhound bus. I came to Hollywood, to, you know, so I had school. I was registered at school, so I had that to... Uh, to occupy my time. And the writing class itself was a once a week, a night class. Um, but it was great. And, oh, and the Death Valley Days thing. So uh, I did follow through with that. And, uh, you know, what do you know? As soon as I get here, after 20 years, the show was canceled. <laughs> so um, I, I think I do remember going in and, and meeting with uh, Ann Udell, but there was no you know, there was no future in it. <laughs> you know, it was yeah. nice to meet you, and uh, sorry the timing was uh, was off, but uh, that was that. So that was disappointing, but I had the, the other school to look forward to and, uh, and Dorothy's class. So um, I took that class for two years, and that was uh, it was terrific. 
And then uh, that led to an actual assignment on the animated Star Trek. All right, if you remember that in 1973, they were reviving. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they were using. There was um, there was a writer's strike on at the time, I think, but uh, that didn't affect animated shows. So a lot of the writers from the original uh, live action series were doing episodes of this animated show, and. Um, Dorothy, uh, I ended up getting an assignment. I pitched a story or stories to Dorothy, and uh, she in turn pitched them to Roddenberry, and uh, an assignment came out of that, an actual <laughs> an official job. Um, but it turned out, uh, or in the meantime, the writing class ended, the school year ended, and so forth, so I wasn't seeing her on a weekly basis anymore. But in any event, the story, my story, um, which was called Albatross, something about a bounty hunter um, who comes to the Enterprise looking to arrest someone, and uh, Dorothy suggested that it be McCoy, the doctor, for some reason having to do with uh, a plague that wiped out a planet civilization 10 years ago that he they're, they're blaming him for and he didn't know anything about. But uh, anyway, the point is I did that story, and then I was paid for it, and I waited and waited. Uh, she said, wait to get the go. Don't write the script until it's been approved uh, and uh, by Gene and by NBC and so on and so forth. So a long time went by. Months went by that I wasn't hearing anything. And I got antsy, and I was, uh, I was young and naive, and I, I just said, well, I'll just write the script and send it in. Um, so I did that. And the next thing I know, it comes back with a rejection, and they were very angry that I had, had done that, and Gene, now Gene was cutting off the story and not uh, going to script on it and so forth. So oh. that was – those are the highs and lows, you know. First, first the high of actually getting an assignment and, and writing the story and getting paid for it, and then the disappointment when, I, when, it, was, when it didn't happen. Um, but um, – and then, uh, so I never watched this. So that was uh, left a really sour, you know, <laughs> that was a very disappointing thing. And I never watched the show when it aired. And then it turns out years later, I heard that they did an episode in the second season called Albatross, which Dorothy was gone by then. But um, it was similar to my story, but somebody else was credited with it. And now I'm not saying they stole it. I mean, they had paid me for my story, you know, so they owned the story. And some of the important elements of the story came from Dorothy. This is not a situation where I'm saying they stole anything, but uh, whoever the writer was of the, the episode that aired in the second season is a mysterious name uh, that really you can't trace any credits to that person, so I'm sure it's somebody's uh, pen name. And, but, but I didn't even know about that until years later. And then uh, just about a little over a year ago, the, the writer Mark Cushman was writing a book on uh, the, the Roddenberry in the, the 1970s years and came across my name and my uh, story outline in Roddenberry's archives. And so, uh, so he, Mark Cushman, the author, got in touch with me and did an interview. And that's the first, kind of the first time I talked about it or thought about it in many years. I didn't. I was surprised that you know that he came to he was looking for me because he had found out I had I had written that and been involved. So that's this kind of long-winded story about how I began as a writer and um, some of the highs and lows that, <laughs> that went with that. And uh, so after that I went into a funk, but I continued to grind out spec scripts for TV shows and finally connected in um 1975 with the Streets of San Francisco. I sold a spec Streets of San Francisco that I wrote. And they bought it, and they shot it a week later. And well, I was off and running from that point. 
Happy ending. <laughs> or a beginning. Happy ending, yeah. Still bumpy roads ahead, but of course. But uh, now I had lunch with Steve Sears recently. Steve, as you know, was a writer producer on Xena, and he um, his credits don't go back as far as as mine. But he, he's insistent that there's, there's never been uh, spec uh, sales in the history of television. Nobody ever did that, and. <laughs> I can attest that I did it not once but twice. I did it a few years after that with my first Simon and Simon. And I know of other instances where it happened. It was never a common occurrence, but it was not an impossibility. Um, uh, and the, David Gerald Trouble with Triple script was a spec script. Oh, that's what I heard, David Gerald, right? Yeah, I mean, I heard that, and I, there may have been one or two other Star Treks uh, over the three years that uh, were bought from outside writers. I know it happened with Bonanza and uh, several other shows. It was still a rare occurrence even then, but it was not outside the realm of possibility. Death Valley Days, as I say, they were actually willing to read uh, scripts that people would send in. I don't know if they bought any, but they were open to submissions, as I say. And also, um, sorry, Steve, I love you, but um, on Remington Steel, I'm a behind-the-scenes freak on DVDs. I like to listen to all the stories. And the oh, producers and the writers all talk about how they started and how they became part of the team. And two of the writers wrote a spec strip for Remington Steel, and that's how they got hired. Well, I can tell you from personal experience that I helped John Worth um, out with his first spec script, which was for Remington, and, and sold it and kicked off uh, his career, which is still going. He's, uh, John is currently executive producer on a, on a show called uh, Woo Assassins. I don't know if you've heard of that, W-U, Wu Assassins. It's uh, Netflix or something. And uh, he, at the time, let's see, he, he contacted me. We had a mutual friend or something, and he contacted me. He wanted to be a writer, and he was, um, I guess he was working on this spec Remington. And so we met. I remember we met at a restaurant one day and, you know, at lunch, and he was going over. Uh, he already, his script was already in the works, but, uh, and, we went over it. It was a good story. It was a definitely, uh, you know, had its uh, strong points. So we, we spent so many hours that we got kicked out of that restaurant because it was well past uh, the point where we had ordered food. But he sold that spec. I believe he did have a contact at M- MTM Productions, uh, someone who, you know, was, who would agree to read it when it uh, was put on his desk. But he went on staff at Remington uh, as a result of that spec script. Do you remember so the that was a happy ending. Do you remember the name of the No, I, I don't, but it had, a, it had to do with a pair of singing telegram girls, <gasps> and uh, John Larroquette was uh, one of the guest stars. I love that episode. That was a great episode. Good. Yeah, I'll, I'll convey that to John. <laughs> Let John know. Love that script. Um, <laughs> I think um, he was one of the writers in that DVD roundtable for, for Remington. Probably. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. There were a lot of Rob, people um, that were on that. A lot of the writers from because right. they were talking about that it was one of the last shows that the writers became a family in the in the room because it was the late eighties. And right. I mean sorry, mid eighties. And that um and that uh the producer who I'm sorry, I've gone out of my head Michael he talks like I'm sorry? Well, Michael Gleason was the executive producer. Michael Gleason. That he encouraged that. He wanted the family feeling with the writers. Right, right. 
the first season of that show had a different staff, and that included R.J. Stewart, who went on to uh, to run Xena. Yep. All right, but the oh, second yeah. season, there was a, a whole different staff, and that's the season that John became involved, and Brad Kern, and uh, later Robin Bernheim, and uh, various others. Jeff Melvoin, I think, was he... Favorite episodes, yeah. He's he was. I re, I remember being so surprised to see his name when I was watching the DVD. Oh, R.J. Stewart. <laughs> right. I never pitched to that show. I was around and active at the time, but it doesn't happen to be a show that I uh, was was ever up for. I was busy with other shows at the same time, you know. Did you? Um. How did you? Um. How did you get in? Uh, you were talking about you were doing um, Street, um, so San Francisco. How did you do Crazy Like a Fox? Was that did you get hired, or did, did they know your work from Street San Francisco, or how? That, that's well, that's my first favorite. I did. Well, that, that was a few years later. That was um, five, four, five years after Streets. Now wait a minute. It was even longer than that. Streets was in 1975. I can tell you off the top of my head that I sold that script on October 15th, 1975. That's how <laughs> impactful it was. And to this day, every October 15th, I say this is the anniversary. And it was on the air exactly three months later on January 15th. And then I actually did a second Streets, which was an assignment um, for, for the last season. However, the series itself was canceled before my second uh, script got made. Um, and, then, and then I went on to Barnaby Jones, another Quinn Martin show, all right, I was heavily influenced by The Fugitive when I was a kid. That, uh, that was my all-time favorite, uh, still is to this day, uh, my favorite TV series. And um, so that was a Quinn Martin production. And so I, was, I really gravitated toward the QM shows, which Streets was. And uh, so then I kind of moved over to Barnaby Jones and wrote freelance uh, for them for um, spread out over uh, four years. All right, so then... Um, and then let's see. There were a few other shows here and there. Chips. I did a couple of chips. And uh, finally, uh, then uh, then things got a little slow again in the early '80s. And I went back to writing specs. And I sold uh, the Simon and Simon script to, to Mike Piller, who was story editor over there. And uh, you know, Michael later went on to run the Star Treks, Next Gen, and Deep Space Nine, and Voyager. So that's that's how I later got involved back into the world of Star Trek. You know, thanks to thanks to Simon and Simon. And uh, you know, every show leads to another show. Every person you work with, <laughs> assuming that it, the relationship goes well, uh, inevitably leads to something else. It's a stepping stone kind of industry. So when Crazy Like a Fox came along, I was uh, I had just done two Simon and Simon episodes in a row, so I was known to CBS. And uh, all right, so there was a writer's strike in 1985, one of many that I've been through in my career up to this point. And on the picket line, I ran into Phil Saltzman, who had been producer on Barnaby Jones. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm on this show called Crazy Like a Fox. When the strike is over, give me a call and uh, you can come in and pitch. All right, so, all right, fine, great. It's, uh, I, I don't think I had seen Crazy Like a Fox up until that point. It, it was um, in its first season, so I started watching it and preparing stories. And when the day came that the strike ended, I called Phil, and uh, what do you, he's no longer on the show. <laughs> you know, as oh. often happens, uh, he's off the show. But I should uh, have my agent try and set me up with the executive producers. Maybe they'll still see me. And that did happen. So I got in the door, and I had a pitch. There were four executive producers, two separate writing teams. 
George Skank and Frank Cardea and um, John Baskin and Roger Schulman. And uh, these are great guys, great guys. So Phil was put off by the fact that they, they'd argue among themselves for hours and hours, and he wasn't used to that. But I felt that they were coming from a place of loving the show and wanting it to be the best uh, it could possibly be. So, so I could put up with that. And I, so I got an assignment, which uh, was a freelance assignment, which turned out so well that uh, they invited me on staff as story editor. So, um, so I went on for the second season of Crazy Like a Fox, and I was there for that entire season. And then there was a lot of politics behind the scenes. Uh, CBS, there was a whole change of management uh, at the top at CBS, and the people who had developed Crazy and put it on the air were out, and the new people wanted to get rid of the older shows. And um, so Crazy, got, we got switched from one time slot, one night of the week to another, four Four time slot changes in one season, and the audience didn't know where to find us, and the ratings went down and down and down, and the producers were scrambling to try to make the network happy. With, what kind of show do you want? Do you want it to be like Murder, She Wrote, to, you know, with a cavalcade of uh, familiar guest stars like Doug McClure every week, or you know, what do you want the show to be? So it was kind of in, in flux that season, it was, and then it was canceled at the end of the season. So that was disappointing. But then, and then... Um, there was an outpouring of uh, reaction from the fans, which were in the form of letters in those days, mm-hmm. not dissimilar to the when Star Trek was canceled. I'm not saying it was that big of a fan base, but CBS began to say, maybe we made a mistake, and uh, we'll let you make a two-hour uh, episode as a possible relaunch of the series. And so they did a two-hour that was shot in London. The show was hugely popular in London. So um, George and Frank wrote an, an episode, Still Crazy Like a Fox, two hours, and the network promised that if it gets a, a 40 share or whatever it was, that they'd put us back on the air. Or at the very least, order additional two-hour movies of the week, which uh, I was in line to, to write one. Anyway, the, the show exceeded those ratings, and CBS still, that was the end of it. <laughs> they just didn't follow through on their promises. That's so uh, that was disappointing, but during the time I, I spent, it was a great experience, and I think it was a, a, a very good show, and, and Jack Warden and John Rubenstein and the whole cast was excellent, Penny Pizer, and I loved working with the producer, George and Frank. I went on to write for them on very, a lot of other shows over the years, um, and they're on, they've been on NCIS for the entire like 17 years. George only just recently retired, but Frank is still there. They haven't been able to get me in there for a variety of reasons, having to do with they, they, they haven't been showrunners until very recently, but they've got a large staff that's already in place, and Mark Harmon is very loyal to his writers, and uh, nobody ever leaves, and there's, there's very few freelance openings, and uh, the yeah, freelancer can't make a living anymore, because the few freelance assignments uh, that come up every year tend to go to writer's assistants or you know people on the inside. Um, nevertheless, it's always a possibility. I mean... Um, Frank wants to have lunch soon, and I just keep that relationship alive, and I, I watch the show all the time, and I'm up on it, and I've, I've already pitched them several stories that, that they like, and uh, I was right on the verge of finally getting an assignment last year, and CBS killed it. Uh, not They didn't kill me personally, but they were insisting on a diversity hire, you know, of a woman or a minority. Uh, they just didn't want to hear. And the end is a prejudice against writers over 50, or over 45, really. They want younger writers. They won't come out and say that, but it's, uh, you know, well-known. And so it's very tough to get in. The, the, 
what I'm saying is that <laughs> the way it was when I started, selling a spec script is highly unlikely today. But and yet the isn't shows that, are people still write that, them, so there there are ways in. Isn't that weird that they have a prejudice over people? I mean, a writer is a writer. It doesn't matter how old you are. <laughs> right. Well, the uh, the networks feel differently, apparently. <laughs> kind of sad. Um, actually, I saw an episode uh, yesterday. I was uh, prepping for the show, and right. I watched I Am the Sky. I Am the Sky. With yeah, that Patrick. was my. Uh, well, that was the, the first. Uh, that was the one that I wrote freelance, and then. Uh, by the time it shot, I was already on staff, so I got involved in that, and they, they made it the season premiere. That was, uh, you know, really uh, an honor. And I went up, uh, when I researched that uh, episode, which is about a tra- air, air traffic uh, reporter, Harry's in the helicopter with a guy, and he Harry sees thinks he sees a murderer. <laughs> All right. Um, I went up and I flew for research. I went up and flew for a couple hours with a, uh, in a helicopter, uh, traffic copter over L.A., and I went up to San Francisco and flew in a fixed wing uh, plane for a couple hours. So I, you know, I like to research uh, my scripts. I, I wanted to know what it feels like to be up there. It, it was a great episode. I really enjoyed it. I it hadn't was fun. seen it since I was a kid right. when it was on, and I loved watching it again. It was it's a great <laughs> episode. I didn't realize that uh, well, was the thing you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, you didn't realize what? I didn't realize that that was the spec that you were talking about. No, no, I'm sorry. That was an assignment. It was not a spec. That was the one where oh. Phil Saltzman uh, was off the show, but I had prepared the story, so I went in and pitched, and that's the one that they liked and, and bought. So that was an assignment, not a spec. Oh, uh, the oh. Simon assignment, the first Simon assignment just prior to that had been a spec. Oh, I see. Okay, I got confused. And, and um, Pat Harrington Jr. was the guest star in, in Eye in the Sky, and uh, a little later in the season, there was actually talk of, uh, let's, let's do a spinoff. Let's do a spin-off with Pat's character. I, I would have been credited as, as creator of that show. I didn't even expect that when I was writing it. But, uh, you know, that for various reasons that didn't happen. The network was souring on crazy in the first place, so they, so they weren't anxious to uh, spin another series off of it. Yeah, that's so terrible that they get like that. Is that when he went into One Day at a Time? No, that was before that. That had that series had ended. That's why uh, CBS was high on him. Originally, the guest star was scheduled to be Eli Wallach, and I was psyched about that. He was a friend of uh, Jack Warden, and was willing to do a guest shot. You know, which you couldn't get Eli Wallach in those days. Wow! And but uh, the network said, "Oh, Pat Harrington is a higher TVQ." <laughs> so uh, it ended up being Pat, but he was great. I love Pat Harrington, but I love Eli Wallach too. He was an right. amazing actor. <laughs> um, we don't have a lot of time. Um, uh, I want to talk about uh, Star Trek, but I also want to talk about your book. Um, sure. How did you get involved with Zena? All right, that was um, again. That was George and Frank, the producers of uh, Crazy Like a Fox. They uh, had. Uh, R.J. Stewart was the showrunner on uh, Xena, and I had uh, R.J. had also worked with George and Frank. R.J. and I had both written episodes of uh, of a show uh, that George and Frank took over and over the end of its run. Okay, so um, R- I think I ran at R.J. once. You know, I met him and we talked, but uh, that was it. 
And then a year or so later, George and Frank say, you know, RJ is running this new show, and he's looking for writers. Do you want us to recommend you? And I said, what's the show? And they said, Xena Warrior Princess. And I said, that sounds ridiculous. <laughs> what the hell is that? And they said, oh, it's a spinoff of Hercules. And Hercules was on the air, but I hadn't seen it yet. So I didn't really have an opinion of it. I just dismissed it. I just thought it does not sound like my kind of thing. At that time, I was writing more the, the cop and detective type shows. Um, so I passed on that. And then time goes on. Xena was not, was not on the air yet, so, so I couldn't watch it. And then I started, finally when it aired, you know, months go by, six months go by, and I, I started saying, well, here's a show that, I, uh, that they wanted to put me up for. Let me check it out. So I watched, you know, turned it on one day, and I watched a few minutes of it, and I said, well, this is strange. It, well, it's kind of, uh, looks like it's a fun thing, but I didn't really think it was my cup of tea, so I turned it off. And then you know, a week or two later, I said, oh, let me check this out again. And then I watched an entire episode, and I'm, and I'm thinking, oh, this, this show is really interesting. This is a nice relationship between these two main characters, and the fun things are happening. And uh, the, the, the Titans, is something about the Titans. And as a kid, I you know, was very heavily into the, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and I loved that kind of Greek mythology and, and so forth. And then I started watching Hercules, and I said, well, this is a good show, too. And then, so then, of course, I, with my tail between my legs, I called George and Frank, and I said, you know, that show of RJ's, is, 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 you think he might still be open? It's a year later, but it, did I blow my chance? And they, they gave him a call, and the next thing I know, I'm invited in. And yeah, I, right. So I go into pitch, and, and Rob Tapper is there, and Liz Friedman, and the entire, everybody, Steve Sears, uh, Chris Mannheim, uh, and RJ, of course, and, and I'm thinking, boy, this, for a freelance pitch, they, they, what are they think like Aaron Sorkin is coming in? This, this is unusual. And, uh, but I got an assignment out of that. I got it. The, the first one was Ten Little Warlords, which um, later became known as the, uh, the, the episode. After Lucy's accident, she had this horseback riding accident on the set of The Tonight Show in Burbank, and she was off Xena for a while while she was recuperating. So they had to do episodes without her. And my episode, my first episode, uh, Ten Little Warlords, which was an Agatha Christie kind of thing on a on a on an island with warlords killing each other off, and Zena caught in the middle. Um, they said, "Oh, we can't do Lucy's not available, so we can't do it with her. But we're going to take this other episode that we did with Callisto and Zena uh, having a body swap, and we're going to extend that. We're going to alter the ending of that, and so that they don't go back to their normal bodies, and that'll carry over into your episode. And Hudson Lake, who plays Callisto, is, is going to play Zena." So I said, oh, okay. <laughs> and they hired me back to do that rewrite. So that, that was interesting, and that turned out to be a – I was very happy with how that episode turned out. I was sorry that Lucy wasn't in it, of course, but um, otherwise it, it, it was terrific. I thought it turned out terrific, and uh, they liked uh, what I had done, and especially under the emergency situation. And so that led to more work, and that in turn led to Hercules. I, I said, well, you know, you've got this uh, – these brother and sister shows, and uh, I'm watching Hercules now too. And I, the stories that might work work better over there than they than they would on Xena. So I expressed interest in pitching there, and I I did that, and then the, I did an assignment over there, and then that led to a staff gig. So for the next two years, I was uh, more heavily involved with Hercules because I was actually producer on that show. But I, uh, having written both shows, I handled all the Lucy crossover episodes of Hercules when she'd come over to do a guest shot, uh, and uh, and uh, so I and then I still went back and wrote a few 
um, Xena episodes during that period. And then Hercules ended, and Xena continued for one more year, and I did uh, one more freelance assignment. And then that was the end of it. <laughs> but a great experience and great people to work with on both of those shows. And, and I got to go to New Zealand. And you got to go to New not Zealand. Regu- not regularly, but once. You know, They needed the writers here in town, uh, not halfway around the world. But I, I said, no, I can't be. It's so strange to be writing a show that's happening around across the world, and we get the dailies uh, you know, days later, and I need to, I need to go. So I... Um, we had a hiatus uh, coming up where we, the writers, were off for um, a period of months, but uh, we had one last episode shooting, and it was my script, so I got to go over for that uh, script. I also really liked uh, on Xena uh, um, Sacrifice 2. That was a really good episode. Well, that was a season finale. That uh, is a whole story where, where um, they called me. I had done an episode. I did not um a two-parter on Hercules, where Callisto ends up uh, in the netherworld, trapped between the, the two worlds, along with a sovereign who is Herc's evil twin, you know, from the alternate universe. So uh, they wanted to, they needed to uh, get Callisto out for their season finale. They wanted her back. So they called me, and, you know, at one point Liz says, says, oh, can you come in? Can you step into a Xena meeting for a few minutes? Uh, Roger needs to ask you a few questions about, what, you know, where is Callisto and how, do you, how can we get her out? So I went into the meeting upstairs um, just to answer those questions. And then I sort of, uh, but it was it. They were discussing their big season finale, finale which is uh, they already knew was going to be a two-parter. And I guess Steve was going to write both parts. And they, um, so I stayed. I answered the questions when I was standing in the doorway. I wasn't even seated. But they, they never dismissed me, and they went on talking, and then and I thought, oh, this is interesting. I'm, <laughs> I, I feel like I'm back in the room with, you know, with the Xena people, which I had loved uh, when I was writing Freelance Xena. And I, so I stayed for the entire meeting, and, you know, contributing little bits here and there, but not really as being involved as I would have if it had been a, a Hercules writer's meeting. Uh, anyway, so then I went away, and I thought that was the end of it. And then the next day, Liz comes into my office and says, Paul, would you mind uh, writing half of the Xena two-parter <laughs> since I was up to speed, having been sat through that, you know, stood through that entire meeting, and uh, Steve will write the other half. It's, you know, it's too much uh, for, for him to handle himself. <laughs> I said, of course, absolutely. And she, the, the, the current Hercules script that I happen to be working on, the, 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 she, the, the showrunner of Herc would uh, take that over. So I... So I was very uh, surprised and delighted to be called back into Xena. I was scheduled to write part one. Steve would do part two. And then uh, in the story meeting, for these things can often be difficult and drag on for hours and hours. So certain elements of the two-parter were not, were not tracking, were not working out properly. And then suddenly they, somebody realized if we switch uh, the elements from uh, Paul's part one and put uh, three-quarters of those into part two, and move these, these other elements up to, to the first half, the, everything tracks and the whole thing works um, better. So, Paul, do you mind doing part two? And I'm like, you want me to do the big cliffhanger finale? Uh, if that's okay with Steve, and Steve was perfectly fine with it. So that's how I ended up doing the cliffhanger uh, where Z, uh, Gabrielle goes off, sacrifices herself and goes off the cliff. And that was a big secret. I had to keep that, uh, obviously, all summer long. I had to keep my mouth shut, so I stopped going to conventions and making appearances and so forth because I couldn't risk saying something that would um, tip things off because they, 
they uh, Gabri- Gabrielle was always coming back. Renee O'Connor was always coming back, but they didn't want the audience to know that. They were going to keep her out of the first few episodes of the new season to make it appear that she had, in fact, died at the end of Sacrifice. And uh, that's, so that's how that worked out. <laughs> so I'm sorry if I had to pull the wool over some fans' eyes, but uh, I was sworn to secrecy. Well, I mean, that's understandable. Um, yeah. We only have about five minutes. I want to talk about your book. Uh, it's tentatively called From Star Trek to Xena to Hercules, A Screenwriter's Life Scripting the Stories of Heroes. Yeah, that's a mouthful. I'm not terribly <laughs> happy about that, but the uh, the, the marketing team of the uh, publishers came up with that title because they want certain words that pop on people's Google searches and so forth, and they feel that's a potential audience. Anyway, this is a behind-the-scenes look at uh, at the shows and my career. It's not all about Xena. It's not all about Hercules, but those are very heavily covered, so I think people interested in those subjects will will be uh, satisfied. You're going to hear it from the writer's point of view. This is not gossip. It's not. It's nothing negative, but it's candid. You know, it's, it's a lot of honest behind-the-scenes uh, stuff of what a writer, what a writer on staff of these shows uh, goes through. So that's coming that out. Really that's coming writing. out from Jacobs Brown. Uh, go ahead. No, oh, I just said I always thought the thought of a writer's staff would be really cool how everybody's throwing ideas back and forth and everything be really exciting just to be a fly on the wall so i think that book will be our big seller (laughs) sure sure and we had tense times with lucy there was that accident and having to do the show without her for a while and then a year later a similar thing happened with kevin sorbo where he had a stroke or a series of strokes and he he had to be uh, off the show for we essentially had to do hercules the legendary journeys without hercules for quite a few episodes, but we had this great cast of supporting characters like Bruce Campbell and, and uh, Bob Trevor, uh, you know, characters who could come in and carry up as Michael Hurst, of course, as Aeolus. So we carried on, and gradually Kevin came back working, uh, you know, a few hours one day, and then, uh, you know, the next week uh, a little more, and gradually came back to full strength uh, by next season. But those were tough. Those are the kind of tough situations you have to deal with uh, on, a, on a show staff. Emergencies. I, I actually have to ask you this. How did, how did you feel about the comedic performance Michael Hurst did portraying you? <laughs> oh, that's right. Well, uh, we did two modern-day episodes, all right? This came out of the Kevin uh, the Missing Crisis. Alex and Bob, or, uh, Kurtzman and Orsi, two writers who went on to big Hollywood careers, they were... Uh, beginning writers on the show. So they pitched uh, doing a show, a Kevin-free episode with us, the writing staff, including Rob and so forth, as uh, trying to do the show without uh, our star. And I thought that at the table, I thought, well, this is very amusing, but we're never going to do this. <laughs> it's, too, it's too inside baseball, you know. The audience is going to be lost. But we ended up doing it, and Michael Hurst played me as a joke. <laughs> These were exaggerated characters of all of us, <laughs> and yet based on some truth. I mean, I really did go to Vegas. I was a gambler. So they, they, they added that I was a drunken lech, <laughs> which I don't, I don't happen to drink. And, uh, but, uh, oh, it was, it was a, I thought it was great. And I had met Michael you know, prior to that when I was in New Zealand, so he somewhat knew me, but not that he was trying to do an accurate version of me at all. That wasn't necessary, but I thought that was amazing. Then we did a sequel a year later to that same episode, so he played me twice. Yep. I thought, oh, my God, I wonder what they're thinking, the the staff. I heard 
Liz Freeman talk at a convention, but I never heard you yeah. talk, so I was always curious what you thought of Michael's performance of you. <laughs> well, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, uh, I just couldn't. Yeah, so I became a character on the show, which I mean, no uh-huh. name other writers that that's ever happened to. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the book is all the book is no, all about no. that, and it'll be uh, available on Jacobs Brown, uh, the, supposedly uh, July first publication date, which uh, they fast tracked it. And uh, basically, it's moving along, and they, they, we're soon going to be reaching the printing uh, phase. So, people, if, so, if they uh, want to go to the website, they might be—you can't order it, pre-order it yet, but eventually, it will be available on Jacobs Brown uh, website. Okay, the website is actually on my um, chatting with Sherry page, and it'll also be on my blog. And uh, if you guys want to look at it, and um, you know. Um, page it so you can bookmark it I mean so you can get it later it'll be there for you um, thank, thank you for that but I want to oh you're welcome um, we don't have a lot of time but I want to thank you for taking time out for coming on the show um, it was great a uh, lot of fun I hope you enjoyed it oh I did and uh, everybody stay safe in these uh, difficult times uh Stay six feet uh, away from each other, but uh, be supportive. You know, it's uh, these are strange times. But thank you for this uh, this phone interview. It took my mind off things for the last forty five minutes. That's good. That's good. And it's what it's supposed to do for everybody to take the mind off the serious stuff of life, and for more uh, creative and fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> so thank you. Thank you very much, and thank you for chatting with Sherry. Thank <laughs> you.